I like to go for a lot of walks around our neighborhood, and uh, as I do, I notice that there's two kinds of people. There's people that are highly committed to their lawns, and there's people that aren't so much. And what's always really interesting to me is when I walk by the houses that share property lines, and you have neighbors where one of the neighbors is highly committed to his lawn, the other neighbor not so much. And you can almost see a definitive line down the middle of the grass where the fertilizer stopped and just the weeds are just in absolute disarray on the other side. I actually have one neighbor down the street, and it's so funny, the houses are so close. They're really about two lawnmower widths, you know, between them. But he, he only, he's committed to his side. He's not, going to, he's not going to extend that grace and make one more pass. He's like, this is definitively my property line. That's clearly yours. And it's just such an interesting visual for me every time I walk by it. I always think that would have taken another eight seconds out of your life to go, meow, and been a good neighbor. But, but anyways, it was, it's just wild. Today's text, as we've been working through the book of Genesis, it is a picture of those runaway weeds. If you've ever... If you've ever uh, lived next to someone who's, who lets the lawn go, you know, you're going to just fight for forever for, for, to, to keep those weeds from coming across onto your side and onto your fence. The text this morning is from Genesis 6. This is a picture of rampant corruption. This is a picture of a, a, a rampant, unparalleled descent into disarray. It's the flood narrative. If you're here this morning and you're searching, uh, you know, seeking, have questions about Christian faith, you're, you're already familiar with this text in a general way. It's the great flood, the account of God's judgment. And you may be thinking to yourself, well, I thought that you come to church on Sunday to be encouraged and, and to hear about Christ and his grace and the gospel. And this just, this just seems like such a negative way to begin a sermon. I mean, how can we do that? Well, I'm going to explain in a minute just to give you some context here. Um, before we read Genesis 6. There was a preacher, his name was Charles Spurgeon. He was a famous preacher in the 1800s. And one time a young man came to him and he said, I can't preach Christ from every text because Jesus isn't in every text. And Spurgeon looked at the young man and he said, Young man, I can get to your house from any road in London. See, in Luke 24, Jesus said, All of Scripture is about him. All of Scripture is concerning him. All of Scripture is fulfilled in him. Therefore, from every text, though it's not explicitly speaking about Christ, it's taking us to the glory of Christ and His grace. So we're going to look this morning at Genesis chapter 6, at this unparalleled wheels-off corruption of the earth, and we're going to see not only God's judgment, but we are going to see God's grace. I'm going to read uh, chapter 6, verses 5 to 13, and then I'm going to read two verses from, 17, uh, from chapter 7. The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, I will blot man out whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animals and creeping things and the birds of the heavens, for I am sorry that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I've determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. 
And the flood continued for 40 days on the earth, and the waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. This is God's word. As we come to this text this morning, we see that the world was overrun, completely overrun by devastation, completely overrun by violence, completely overrun by corruption and destruction, like those weeds that just go rampant and they kill your entire lawn and they take over and there's nothing left. This is the picture that the scriptures gives us of the ancient world and how it had spiraled into this darkness and depravity. Here's today's sermon in a sentence. It's that the sin of a suffering humanity induced the judgment of a suffering God and necessitated the grace of a suffering Savior. So first, let's take a look at this sin of a suffering humanity. Kids, if you have your notes, that's that first line you want to look at there. We're going to look at the sin of a suffering humanity. How many of you kids who are in the service here, you've ever been fighting with your siblings and you use global statements and your parents say, don't do that. By global statement, you say, but they always... You never, every single time, right? And your parents tell you, they're like, you know, don't talk with your siblings that way. Kids, do you know why your parents say that to you? It's because if you use that kind of language, there's no way forward. For those of you who are in high school or university walking around campuses, if you have frustrations in your relationships with your friends and you're you're not getting anywhere in that discourse, and you decide to try and put a power play on and win the argument, and you start using words like, well, you know, you always and never, and they always, and they never, you've shut all the discourse down. There's no way forward if you use that kind of global language. For those of you who are married, if you're not having any any, uh, success in getting through to your spouse, and you decide to put a power play on and be like, you know what? Every single time we discuss this, always you without fail are always, there's no room, there is no way forward. Verse 5 of chapter 6, God uses global language. Why? Their hearts were always, forever, continually, thoroughly corrupt. Why does the scripture use that language? There is no way forward. There's no way forward. Man has destroyed themselves. This is the picture that we get here. In verse 5, the, the, the word in the Hebrew for the wickedness of man was great. That word in the Hebrew, great, is... Uh, Means, it means abundance. It's like there was an, an overabundance. Just to give you a picture of this word, there's a very familiar passage in Lamentations chapter 3, verse 23, which says, um, The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercy never comes to an end. His mercy is new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. Right? We have that song that we love to sing in church. Great is thy faithfulness, O God. Great faithfulness. Genesis 6, great wickedness. Same word in the Hebrew. So when you think about the expanse of grandness of God's grace, that's the language that the scriptures use to describe the state of the ancient world at that time. And so today's text, it deals with divine judgment and divine grace. And as modern Westerners, we like how the phrase divine grace strikes our ear But we really struggle with the idea of believing in a God who would administer this level of divine judgment. This is a huge hurdle for us. Dostoevsky said this. He said once in in one of his writings, he said, If there is no God, all things are permissible. And that idea is correct. If we play that out, let's think this through. If there is no God, and we all evolved from animals 
then on what basis is it really wrong to trample on another person's rights? We don't, we don't punish animals for the strong preying on the weak. We don't consider it immoral when animals you know, prey on weaker animals. So on what basis would we assume that we as bigger-brained animals, if we were only bigger-brained animals, should have some sort of a unique dignity that isn't afforded the rest of the animal kingdom? Right? We don't, when we look at the food chain, we don't, it, it doesn't mortify us. We leave it alone because it's natural. The, the evil and corruption in Genesis 6 is not natural. The whole point of the scripture is to get us to see that this is not natural. This is a, this is a dark and supernatural level of absolute destruction in, in the ancient world that had ended up bringing on God's judgment, that humanity is truly suffering in, in a radical, radical way. That's why when you know, weeds take over our lawn, it frustrates us and it makes us angry and they just eat everything and they destroy it, but it's natural. But if one nation rises up and goes into another nation and just starts to pillage it, all of us, regardless of our worldview, say, that's wrong, that is not right. We get involved. We get personally and morally outraged at all that. And that's because God has bestowed this conscience in everyone, which is a gift of his common grace to mankind. And so all of us uphold the sense of human dignity, even if our God consciousness is gone. Because inherently, everyone has a knowledge of God, but rejecting God is repressing what we know. Genesis 6 was a global repressing of that knowledge of God. It was a global rejection. They spiraled into this great darkness. But we, we, we all, as humans, know that there's a God, even if we, we, we repress that, because Ecclesiastes 3 tells us that God has placed eternity in our hearts. Romans 2 tells us God has placed his law in our hearts. That's why if you're here today and you're not a person of Christian faith and you're, you're wondering, you're searching, you're seeking, that's why if you go to a funeral, it doesn't matter if that person was religious or non-religious. It doesn't matter if they were a Christian, a Hindu, Islam, a, a Muslim, or a Sikh, or, or they were an atheist. You attend a funeral and everybody at that funeral has a sense of like, this isn't right. Because we were created for eternity. The soul of man knows there's something wrong. Genesis 6 is a picture of of, of this unparalleled corruption into this kind of descent of darkness because they were all essentially living as their own gods. In Genesis 3, the, te- the temptation, the lie, was you can live apart from God, and that's a dream. Well, it ended up being a nightmare dressed like a daydream because it, by Genesis 6, the whole world, it's just a wheels-off destruction. Uh, Arthur Leff is a professor of law at Yale University, and he said something interesting about law and God in, a, in, a, in an essay that he wrote, because he was dealing with the idea that if there is no God, then essentially how do we, uh, you know, who gets to decide what law is? I'm going to read a portion of his essay here to give us a hint on how it is Genesis 6, sin and humanity suffering got so bad. This is what uh, Professor Leff writes. In the absence of God, each ethical and legal system will be differentiated by the answer it chooses to give on key questions. And the key question being, who among us, if there is no God, ought to be able to declare law that ought to be obeyed. Stated that baldly, the question is so intellectually unsettling that one would expect to find a lot of people in the legal and ethical uh, fields trying to not come to grips with this. Either God exists or he doesn't, but if he doesn't, then nothing can take his place. And what he's trying to provoke is this. It's that if there is no God, then who gets to put their subjective, arbitrary, moral feelings into law? You might say that the majority has the right to make the law, but are you willing to say the majority has the right to exterminate the minority? Genesis 6, everybody is making their own law. Everybody is living by their own code. And the world had spiraled into into this utter destruction. And so Leff concludes his essay 
in a really striking way, and this is what he says. He says, as things are now, everything is up for grabs. Nevertheless, napalming babies is bad, starving the poor is wicked, buying and selling each other is depraved. There is such a thing as good and evil. All together now, says who? God help us. It's an interesting article that he, that he, that he writes to provoke this. In, he, in, verse cha- in verse 8 of the text that we just read, the world was filled with violence, which is the Hebrew word chamath. I don't think I pronounced that very well because my Hebrew is not very good, but the Hebrew word means that um, it's violence, but I'm going to give you the range of meaning because all languages have a range of meaning. So your translations are faithful, but the broader range is that the world was filled with violence, injustice, oppression, damage. It was thoroughly damaged. And so without a God of absolute perfection who transcends us, Kids, you can take a look down at your notes because this is one of the blanks that I put for you. Unless we're worshiping God as the one who gives life to us and defines life for us, then we're left to define life by ourselves, by our own subjective and self-serving standards of judgment. It'd be like kids if we said, hey, after, you know, this afternoon, uh, we're, we're all going to build a treehouse. And here's your tools. You guys get some saws. You all get to cut the wood. And uh, everybody gets a saw. But, oh, we only have one tape measure. Well, there's only one tape measure, so I need everybody, you've all got your saws, everybody cut the wood to build the treehouse at 60 inches, okay? But then one of the, you know, one of the kids decides, well, we don't like this tape measure. You know, who get, I get to decide what 60 inches looks like. So they throw the tape measure away. And now you're all, with your saws, cutting wood to what you think is 60 inches. What are the odds of all of those pieces of wood being the same length? The odds are zero. Because you need a standard of judgment, a standard of measurement that's outside your, your own perception. Now, now, I'll stop talking to the kids. How many of you have tried a home renovation project? And you did a little bit of eyeball construction. And in the end, the shelf was not straight. The picture frame was crooked on and on. You're like, yeah, that looks right. And then your spouse comes in and goes, that's totally crooked. That's not right. This was the problem. The sin of a suffering humanity. But the sin of a suffering humanity, it induced the judgment of a suffering God. And you may say, well, that's such a w- weird term. Why would we say a suffering God? We don't like the idea of the, God, if God is omnipotent and all-powerful, then God shouldn't be suffering. Well, let's look at this text. It teaches us something powerful about this, the judgment of a suffering God. In verse 5, we see that, of course, everything had become terrible. But in verse 6, we find that God's heart is filled with pain. Verse 5, the earth is filled with violence. Verse 6, God's heart is filled with pain. The Hebrew word for this pain, it means it's bitter anguish. In fact, if you go to the full range of the meaning in the Hebrew, it's unfulfilled longing. So I want you to imagine that God is looking at the world and he is filled with this anguish, this unfulfilled longing. How many of you have ever flopped on your bed and cried? How many of you have put your head on your desk at work and said, I can't take it anymore? How many of you have been walking across campus and you're trying to choke, keep the tears down because you're just so distraught about something that has devastated you? See, God is feeling all of this. He's looking at Verse 5, the world is full with pain. Verse 6, God is full of pain. This teaches us something. It gives us critical insight. Without this, we can't understand God. And without this, we can't understand the gospel. Because the judgment of sin is not a knee-jerk reaction in anger. It's a tearful act from a broken heart. 
You know, it took Noah, depending on your math as you judge the ages of his children and how you work that out, it took Noah somewhere between, scholars would say, 55, 60 to 70 years to create, to, to, to build this ark. So God is dealing with this anguish for decades. He doesn't get angry at the world in the morning and flood it that afternoon, which I think is how most people, inside and outside the church, think of the flood narrative. They look at it like, you know, God got angry, people weren't living up to snuff, I expect better behavior out of you, boom, flood. That's not... We've got a God who is weeping and crying over his creation. And the flood narrative, it reminds us that the earth is important to God. He's the God of creation. He flung the stars in the sky. He didn't need Noah to spend 70 years to, 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 to chop wood and build an ark. He didn't need him to do that. He could have just teleported him up and wiped it out and started over again. What this teaches us is that the earth matters to God. Put all the animals on the ark. I'm going to restore the earth. I'm going to restore humanity. I'm going to restore the animals. I'm going to restore everything that I created. You see, in contrast to every other world religion, right, whether it's Hindu or or, or, or Muslim or Buddhist, where they are all essentially an escape from the physical to the spiritual. Christianity is the opposite. We are not escaping the physical to the spiritual. You read the end of the book, spoiler alert, Revelations 21 and 22, if you haven't read it, God is coming here. God is restoring everything. God is not going to, you know, kids, look down at your notes again. God is not giving up. He's not tossing it out. And he's, he's restoring it. He's not giving up on his creation. He's restoring his creation. This is the Christian faith. And see, when God created us, he voluntarily bound himself to us in love. He didn't need to do that. He, cre- he didn't create us because he was needy. Kids, you know, if you've ever done chores, like when I was a kid, I used to do chores, and I'd be like, the only reason, the only reason you had kids was so you had more help to clean the house. Yeah, right, parents? Because that's a fantastic idea. How can we get more work done in an efficient manner? Have children. Brilliant plan. Nobody in here did that. God did not create us and have... Sorry, Peter. He's a... What? Emerson's not going to be helpful. Okay. That's a prophecy. So what we find is that God bound his heart to the joy of his creation. And so because the creation was devastated, God's heart is devastated. He's a suffering God. We can't understand the gospel if we don't understand our suffering God and our suffering Savior. And because that's, his joy is absolutely bound up. So God is not, what, what this narrative teaches us is God doesn't get angry in the morning and flood the world in the afternoon because he's indifferent to suffering, he's above suffering, he doesn't care about suffering, he doesn't feel suffering. No. Genesis 6 teaches us we have a God who is intimately understanding of suffering. We have a God who suffered more than any of us and will suffer more than any of us because we're only on this planet for 100 years, but God's heart was continually suffering for his creation, breaking for that thing that he created in perfection, which has now come into damnation. He is suffering. And so that's the contrast of verses 5 and verse 6. Man is suffering and God is suffering. Every act of evil throughout all of world history pulls tears from God. And the only reason human history exists is because God is willing to suffer. See, if we think that the Bible is about us, and if we think that God exists for us, this flood narrative will never make sense. It will never make sense because this text, 
And any text can only make sense if we interpret the Bible correctly. And by interpreting the Bible correctly, I mean that Genesis introduces us to a creator God who continually reveals himself as a redeeming God who is committed to rescuing, renewing, reforming, and restoring a fallen creation that doesn't deserve his rescue. The Bible is about God, and we exist for God, and that changes how we read this. There's a man named Miroslav Volf. He's a professor of uh, theology at Yale, and uh, he wrote an essay on exclusion and embrace, and it was all about, he was making a thesis about practicing nonviolence. How can we practice nonviolence in a world of violence? How can we be people of rest in a world that's at unrest? And I think he gives us some insight into this judgment in Genesis 6 of the flood where, that we, I think, as moderns can misunderstand. This is what he says. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. This thesis will be unpopular in the West, but imagine speaking to people, as I have, whose cities and villages have been plundered and burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take up the sword. If God were not angry at injustice, if God were not angry at deception, if God were not angry at oppression, if God did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. And so you see, it's faith in a God who, who, who is suffering and loving his creation, who has perfect and final judgment. It actually relieves our souls from a life of vengeance. It relieves our souls of a life of hatred. It relieves our souls of the need to exact our own subjective, self-serving judgment. Now, I'm often asked by skeptics this last few years, I've had a lot of coffees with people who who have either walked from the church, they've walked from Christian faith, or they're Christians, but they're struggling with their faith. And I've also sat down with people who, they don't profess faith at all. And, and I would say one of the most common questions I'm asked is, why does God let it continue? Why did God let it ha- you know, why didn't God just stop it if God knew, if God's all-knowing? You know, why didn't he just stop everything? And, and that, is a, uh, that is a brilliant question. That's a fantastic question. I think here's what we need to think about that. First of all, in terms of our reasoning, just because we can't think of a good reason God wouldn't do something doesn't mean a good reason doesn't exist. It just means I can't conceive of it. So I think that there's a difference between wondering about why God would do something from a posture of humility or arrogantly deciding that because God, we don't understand why God would do something, that he doesn't have a good reason for it. So I, I, I think there's that. But the other thing is that we are trying to understand an infinite God in finite ways. So I'm not advocating we turn our brains off. If you're here and you're a skeptic, I'm not advocating that you stop asking questions or that Christian faith requires you to shut your intellect off and check your brains at the door. That's not true of Christian faith at all. What I'm inviting you to understand is that the only way we can make sense of God's patience with sin, the only way we can make sense of God's patience with human history, patience with generation after generation after generation of atrocities being done in humanity, is to embrace what this text teaches us about God's heart. And what it teaches us is that God is not indifferent to suffering. He's equated, he's acquainted with the suffering, he's deeply suffering. Therefore, God's vision for what he is restoring, he considers worth all of his suffering. We can't conceive of God restoring, because we live in the here and now, and we look out, we look out the window and we say, this is crazy, or a loved one dies of a disease, or we, 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 we fall to the devastation of violence or oppression or violation, 
and we say, how can God let this continue? We can't understand that God could possibly restore something that makes all of the suffering worthwhile. We can't conceive of that. But yet, what this text teaches us is God isn't up there with his arms crossed going, you know, this is really upsetting to me. He's, he's antiquated in suffering. Uh, and not only is he suffering, but he's sending a suffering Savior. So it leads us to the final thing we're going to look at this morning. Not only the, the suffering of man and the judgment of a suffering God in the flood, but the grace of a suffering Savior. So again, this judgment is not a knee-jerk reaction from some sort of cosmic perfectionist. He's not frustrated that his people couldn't get it right. The judgment of our suffering God was a simultaneous act of saving mercy to preserve one family from which a suffering Savior would come and offer grace to people who would never get it right. This is essential for us to understand. Verse 8 says, Then Noah found grace. And verse 9 says, Noah was called righteous. How did Noah find that grace? How was Noah called righteous? It wasn't his. Did God look down and say, this whole thing is a wash except that one guy who's getting it right? Was, did Noah's performance merit his spot on the ark? No, it did not. If Noah's righteousness was his, his own, if he was inherently good and inherently righteous and not sinful, then after the flood there would have been no sin. But after the flood, there was sin because animals weren't the only thing Noah brought on the ark. Noah brought a sin on the ark, too. And so we learn something about this verse, this striking verse that says, Noah found grace. It's that grace, by its definition, in the Hebrew, it's kahen, which means grace or favor. It means, by its very definition, it's bestowed, it's given, it's not earned. So when the text says, but Noah found grace, don't read it like a modern North American, but Noah earned his spot on the air, but Noah earned through his performance, through his works. Noah's works were good enough that God called him righteous because his good. What? Not at all. God, in his great grace, had moved towards Noah. Noah did not earn his spot on the ark any more that we earned our salvation. Noah did not earn his righteous standing any more that we earned our righteous standing. Noah did not earn his salvation. He did not save himself any more than we save ourselves. Noah found grace. He found himself the recipient. That's what the Hebrew word means, kahen. Noah, Noah found grace. If you're here and you're an English teacher and you were te- trying to teach your children to read, you would say, what's the subject of the sentence and what's the object? Right? Well, the subject of the sentence is what the sentence is about and the object of the sentence is it's having something done to it. Noah is the object of God's grace, just like we are the object of something God did. Noah's on the receiving end of this radical grace. It's beautiful, and it's powerful, and and it's incredible. He's a recipient of this grace that came toward him minus our merit, in the same way that we are recipients of the grace of Christ that came toward us minus our merit. Verse 9 says, Noah walked with God. Church, we walk with God, but what does that mean? The term walked with God is a Hebrew idiom. It, It means it's an intimate relationship. How do you get that unless God's grace comes to you and he draws you to himself? Noah walked with God. Noah was drawn by God's grace. He received this kahane. He received the favor. He was covered in it. And because he was covered in it, Noah is called righteous. Noah is called blameless. We are called righteous and blameless. This is, there's a pattern in salvation. There's a pattern in God's grace. Genesis shows us grace from the get-go. How God is relentlessly pursuing those who don't deserve it. It's a beautiful, uh, powerful picture. In verse 11 to 13, 
when it says that God says to Noah he's going to destroy the earth, there's some wordplay going on here. Because the same word for corruption is the same word for when God says, I will destroy. Corrupt and destroy, it was, it's the same word in the Greek, it's the, it's, or in the Hebrew, it's the word shachath. And the word shachath means destruction. So what God is saying is, I'm going to destroy the destroyed. I'm going to bring destruction to the destruction. Do you see this? It's not like there was things that were okay and God goes, oh, it's not up to snuff, I'm going to wipe it out. He goes, they've destroyed it. It is destroyed. Therefore, I will destroy the destroyed. They have brought utter destruction. Therefore, I will stop the destruction. I will bring destruction to this destruction. The flood narrative is judgment and simultaneous saving grace. It is a simultaneous mercy. It reveals that God is a lover who's suffering Because those who he loves are continually spitting in his face. From the beginning of the garden, we said, we don't want you. We don't trust you. And in every account since then, including this one of divine judgment, we find God in a confounding defiance against what humanity deserves, continually seeking to save. How does he do it? He finds Noah, and he gives grace to Noah. And through Noah, Noah is righteous. Noah walks with God, and he's able to preserve humankind. God would have been just in wiping out the entire human race, including Noah, because Noah was sinless, but God never aborted his redemptive plan. So this gives us a picture of a suffering Savior, God interrupts an irreversible, devastating spiral of violence to save one family, not because we could be saved by a reboot, but because we could only be saved through the descendants of Noah by a redeemer. The flood narrative is not about a reboot. It's about a redeemer. Kids, how many of you guys know that everything coming out of Hollywood now is like 95% reboots? Right? Spider-Man just came out. I took my kids to watch it. It was really fun. It was really enjoyable. Reboot, right? We look back, they, what, what happens? The studio looks back and goes, oh, that wasn't so good. And then, oh, we made some, I think we could do that better. I think we could tell the story better. Let's just wipe it out and reboot it. You know, that's how moderns read the flood narrative. Like God was just going to reboot. He just looked down and goes, nah, I think we can do better than that. Reboot. This is not about a reboot. This is about a redeemer. This is about God looking down and in his great grace, saving a family so that he could get redemption to the planet, so that Christ could come, so that he could redeem all of us. The Bible's not about us. The Bible's about God. The Bible's about this creative lover who created everything in perfection. He's going to restore everything to perfection. And everything in between is a radical rescue narrative from the greatest wedding planner of all history. I mean, this is what God is doing. This is the love that he has for his creation. This is a picture. It anticipates the, uh, the suffering Savior. The same water that buried those who didn't trust in God, it lifted those who did. The flood gives us a pattern of God's grace through judgment to show us how God saves from judgment. Noah was saved from the storm of judgment. Later on, you have another man, Jonah, who is saved from a storm of judgment. And Jonah says, the only way for you to live is for me to die. And later, in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus says, P.S., I'm the greater ark, I'm the greater Jonah. The only way for you to live is for me to die. 
Jesus comes to fulfill all things, the suffering Savior, to say, I'm going to take all the judgment. I'm going to take all the wrath. I'm going to do for you what you could never do for yourself. In Genesis 6, God's heart is breaking for humanity, and on the cross, Jesus' heart was breaking for humanity. At the cross, Jesus is absorbed in an ocean of judgment. In the tomb, Jesus sunk in the ocean of that judgment. In his resurrection, Jesus rose from the ocean of that judgment so that we could be saved and lifted on an ocean of God's mercy. At the cross, our judge became the justifier because Jesus is the greater ark, because Jesus is the greater salvation. You see, after the flood narrative, we needed a greater salvation because sin perpetuated in the world after Noah, sin perpetuated. Jesus comes and not only does he rescue us from our sin, but then he begins to reform and renew us so that we're no longer slaves to our sin, absolutely continually bound to it. He, he rescues and he reforms. The sin of a suffering humanity induced the judgment of a suffering Savior. and I'm uh, sorry, a suffering God, and it necessitated this grace of a suffering Savior. And now, church, as I close, we are in Christ. In the same way that Noah and his family were saved in the ark, all of the New Testament epistles use this language. We are in Christ, Jesus, the greater ark. We are saved through the waters of, of baptism and faith in Christ. He brings this greater salvation. And so now, for those of us who are in Christ, may we enjoy our freedom knowing that Judgment Day already happened. Christ took it all. There's no wondering. He didn't start something and make your salvation possible so that through your great righteous life, you make it actual, because in that equation, you're the Savior. That's not the gospel. We rest in Christ like Noah rested in that ark, as Christ has done it all. The judgment already happened at the cross. And as those who are in Christ, may we desire that Christ be formed in us. As those rescued by God's grace, resting in God's grace, May we be bold ministers of God's grace. Let's pray.